Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. The progression of medical science has rarely been easy or straightforward. The history of medicine is spangled with failures, missed opportunities, and tremendous successes. Today's guest on Sound Practice is both a leading authority on COVID-19 and author of the newly released You Bet Your Life from Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccinations, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. Prepare to travel from the polio wards of the 1950s to the present halls of the FDA as we discuss the safety of our nation and its children. My guest today is Paul Offit. Dr. Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center and an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's also author of the recently released You Bet Your Life from Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, the Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. Dr. Offit, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, you head up the Vaccine Education Center. Could you tell us a bit about the center and your initiatives there? Sure. Well, we launched actually um, about 20 years ago that I was on the, a member of the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, which advises the CDC in the late 90s. And there were sort of like three things that happened all in a row. Um, there was a concern raised by uh, a doctor named Andrew Wakefield in England that the combination of measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism. And we at, were actually asked to vote on whether or not we wanted that vaccine to be separated into its three component parts, which would, in theory, then lessen the risk of autism. Um, obviously, that was um, not that was a spurious association. There was no that wasn't a causal association. It's been disproven now in about 18 different studies. But nonetheless, we were asked to vote on that. And then right around the same time, there was this concern that thimerosal, this ethyl mercury-containing preservative in vaccines, might be harmful as we were adding more and more vaccines to the schedule, more and more uh, vaccines contained this preservative. Now, it was, it was well below the levels that would have been considered to be unsafe, but nonetheless, it was, um, it was something that was raised as a concern. The Public Health Service actually um, made a directive to the companies to basically take thimerosal out of vaccines to children less than four, which meant we moved basically from multi-dose files to single-dose files. And it was, um, it, you know, the, the, the public health service said at the time, you know, we're uh, with all the evidences that, that thimerosal level contained in vaccines is safe, but to make vaccines even safer. Well, if it was if it was safe, how does taking it out make it safer? It only made it perceived to be safer, which is different. Um, and then there was RotaShield, which was a rotavirus vaccine that was on the market for about 10 months and that was taken off because of a it was a very, very rare cause of intussusception or intestinal blockage. And what occurred to me during that time, that sort of two year period of time when vaccines were really on the run, was really I didn't see any scientists standing up for for to explain the science to the public. 
Um, the, the pediatricians were great. I mean, they would stand up and say, look, um, vaccines are good. Vaccine preventable diseases are bad. We vaccinate our own children. But I didn't hear like the scientists, the basic scientists, the immunologists, the virologists, you know, the uh, people who worked in poison control centers or whatever, standing up for the science. So that's why we created our center. We created our science center to sort of provide information to the public, to the media, about uh, to politicians, about, about these issues, to try and explain in simple terms the science of vaccines so that we, we wouldn't have to face these crises as often as we face them. So at the AAPL, we're, we're interested in supporting physicians in their goal to get patients vaccinated. <laughs> COVID-19. Do you have any wisdom or strategies that are working or that you know of that are helping overcome vaccine hesitancy? Any best practices for us, Dr. Offit? Right. Then that's that's the question of the day. So, um, you know, we did the hard part, right? I mean, in 11 months, we, we made a vaccine using two novel technologies, messenger RNA and vectored vaccines, within 11 months of actually having first isolated that virus. That is nothing short of miraculous. I mean, it's not a miracle because it can be explained by the laws of nature, but nonetheless, it was amazing. Tremendous, right? By anyone's calculation, just absolutely <laughs> tremendous. Right. So, um, and, you know, we, we figured out how to mass produce it and we figured out how to mass distribute it and mass administer it in, in a public health system that wasn't geared toward mass administering vaccines to adults. And it was free and it was readily available pretty much everywhere. And we did everything we could to try and get good information out there, to decrease bad information, to have influencers get into communities that were generally under vaccinated. I don't know what more else we could have done, but then we hit a wall. We hit that wall. I mean, we were at 3 million doses a day back in in like April, May. If we'd stayed on that path, we would could look at this pandemic in our rearview mirror, but we didn't because we hit a wall. There's a solid 65 million people who don't want to get vaccinated. And um, I just don't think there is any way to convince people who are just dead set not on getting vaccines because largely they're conspiracy theorists. They think that there's a um, that they don't trust the pharmaceutical industry. They don't trust the medical community. They don't trust the, the government. And so what do you do? And what you do, the only thing I think currently that the administration can do, which is compel people by mandates and, and do the best you can there. there. There's an old line by Neil deGrasse Tyson, which is um, you can't use reason and logic to talk somebody out of something that they, they that they reached a conclusion of without using reason and logic to get into. So you know, that's where you're you're stuck. I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, that is the question. And I, I mean, I get a lot of calls from from parents as well as from uh, other other friends and stuff and, and who are hesitant about the vaccine. And and, and it's, it's a biased sample. Obviously, they've called me. So, so you know, they're probably more open to advice. But, but there's a solid 15 percent of people that call me that I know I will have no chance of making inroads in because they just don't believe the, 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 the process. They don't trust the process. I mean, look at a guy like Kyrie Irving. I mean, to me, he is the poster boy for vaccine refusal. He will lose as much as $17 million this year because he's not willing to get two shots of an mRNA-containing vaccine or one shot of J&J's vaccine. I mean, he's not being asked to get a heart transplant. He's just being asked to get a vaccine, and yet he's willing to lose that kind of money. It gives you an idea as to how dug in some people are on this. It, it Sadly, it does indeed, doesn't it? Um, I'm concerned that vaccine hesitancy for COVID-19 may or has spilled over to other vaccines. Are parents less likely to trust other vaccines because of our recent history? 
Well, you're starting to see that. I mean, if it's, for example, there have been, um, you know, governors or Congress people in various states who said, you know, while we're at making sure that we don't have mandates for this vaccine, why don't we just eliminate mandates, period, in our in our thing? But I think the term vaccine hesitancy is, is a euphemism. I, I think I think it's reasonable to be hesitant about vaccines. I mean, we're, we're tomorrow. The FDA's vaccine um, uh, advisory committee is going to meet. I'm a member of that committee. We will review the data on five to 11 year olds. And I can see where people would be hesitant. We don't have a lot of data. You know, it'll be it'll be a several thousand child study for which is now going to hopefully predict correctly what's going to be true in millions of children. And, you know, you're always your heart's always in your throat to some extent when you make those kinds of recommendations because you want more data because you never know everything. Everything. The question is, when do you know enough? When do you know enough to say it's okay to move forward? But there are systems in place to pick up very, very rare adverse events. But so I think that that's 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 reasonable. I think skepticism is reasonable. I think you should be skeptical of anything you put in your body. You should find the day. But right now, for vaccines for adults, there's more than a billion doses of COVID nineteen vaccines that have been distributed. We're good. You know what the safety profile is. You know what the efficacy profile is. We're picking up events as rare as one in five hundred thousand people, which tells you how how good those uh, those systems are. At this point, you're not vaccine hesitant anymore. I consider you at that point a vaccine denialist or science denialist. I think it's this difference between being skeptical and being cynical. And I think when somebody's cynical, it's it's very hard to convince them. I agree with I agree with that. So messaging on booster shots has been confusing at best. This puts physicians in a difficult position with their patients. How can these type of communication problems be reduced going forward? I think we have had three major communications problems with this vaccine. Um, two of them actually were born of that Provincetown outbreak in eastern Massachusetts when thousands of men got together, celebrated July 4th. Um, they were about 79 percent of those people were vaccinated. Nonetheless, there was an outbreak that involved 346 people, mostly asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic infection. Four people were hospitalized for a hospitalization rate of 1.2 percent. That's a win. That's good. That means your vaccine is working well. But thus was born in that outbreak was born the term that the CDC used of breakthrough. They called those mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic illnesses breakthroughs. That's not a breakthrough illness. A breakthrough illness were those four people who got hospitalized despite being vaccinated. That was a breakthrough. I mean, we set a standard for this vaccine for which we set for no other vaccine, certainly not for respiratory viruses, where you're, if you have an asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection, that's considered a breakthrough. I mean, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was fully vaccinated, had an asymptomatic infection. You know, if you watch that on the media, the constant use of the term breakthrough, which implies failure, you would think it was in the ICU. I mean, Lindsey Graham, who I'm, I keep sort of pointing to Republicans, but Lindsey Graham said, you know, correctly when he got uh, COVID despite being vaccinated, he said he had a mild respiratory infection. He had sinusitis. So what did he say? He said, this would have been much worse if I hadn't been vaccinated. Right. Lindsey Graham got that right. So, um, you know, I just think that was mistake number one. The mistake number two also was born of that Provincetown outbreak was that if you are are mildly symptomatically infected, um, it doesn't matter whether you've been vaccinated or not, because you will still be as contagious. That was not true. And subsequent studies have shown that wasn't true. If you're vaccinated, you're much less likely to shed as much virus for as long a period of time as people who weren't vaccinated, both with the same degree of symptoms, mildly symptomatic. The third, I think, was when President Biden got up to the podium and said, um, as of September 20th, we are going to have a booster recommendation for all. What did he say? He just told you you weren't fully vaccinated even if you'd gotten two doses. 
And so that's what people said. I mean, we mandate the vaccine in our hospital. We had to have a meeting. Is two doses enough? Um, so I think I think we keep inadvertently damning this amazing vaccine, which re works remarkably well. If the goal of the vaccine, and it is the reasonable goal, is to prevent serious illness, prevent the kind of illness that causes you to seek medical attention or go to the hospital or go to the ICU or worse, um, this vaccine has been amazingly good at that because all it requires to do that is immunological memory. And so all three vaccines have been able to do that for the roughly eight months that they've been out there uh, in distribution for all age groups um, and, and through the Delta variant. So again, protection against serious disease has been excellent. It's the protection against mild illness that has waned, as you would expect it would as neutralizing antibodies fall to some extent. So trying to keep those antibodies up, trying to prevent mild illness is just really hard. It's not something we do with any vaccine. And it's been hard to watch this play. I don't know if you saw there was an article in the New York Times today, uh, October 25th, um, talking about sort of all the people who are on both the CDC and the FDA advisory committees that have had problems with this whole booster thing. The minute I think that, that President Biden got up there, it became very hard to step back. I think we, he created an expectation that you needed a booster dose. And although I think the data are very good that for people over 70 years of age, that a booster dose is a benefit, that's about it, frankly, in terms of data in hand, it shows the clear value of a booster dose. Speaking of communication, it brings to mind social media. Social media continues to be the Wild West for medical information. And we've seen some anti-vax groups are targeting certain segments of the population with their message. Should physician leaders try to address misinformation uh, found on social media, or is this just a game of whack-a-mole? So it's definitely a game of whack-a-mole, but, but you have to keep whacking. And I think people do do keep whacking. I mean, you know, do vaccines cause infertility? Do vaccines alter your DNA? Um, are vaccines necessary for children, et cetera? I mean, I think constantly people are trying, trying to get that information out there. Our Vaccine Education Center, Children's Hospital Philadelphia certainly does that, as, as do a number of, of sites do that. So we're trying. I think people are trying. But, you know, once you've scared people, it's hard to unscare them. Once you've rung the bell, it's hard to unring it. And I think that's what you're always up against. The anti-vaccine people know that. They just keep throwing things up against the wall, hoping some things will stick. And some do. Sadly. Maybe you could tell our audience about your most recent book, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccinations, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. Right. Um, so the book came out about a, a week ago. Um, it, it's, it's, it goes to the nine major medical advances, you know, antibiotics, vaccines, biologicals, chemotherapy, anesthesia, um, and others um, that have caused us to live 30 years longer than we did 100 years ago. Um, but always there is a human price to pay for knowledge, always. And I think we always think we're past that, that we're now so sophisticated in science, so sophisticated in medicine, that there's really not a learning curve anymore. That's not true. Even if you just look at these, these vaccines, I don't think anybody would have predicted the mRNA vaccines would be a rare cause of myocarditis, a very, very rare cause of myocarditis, or that these vectored virus vaccines would be very, very rare causes of clotting, including severe clotting, including, in a few cases, fatal clotting. 
Um, we would never have predicted that, and we're always intolerant of it. We're always intolerant. And, and so I think that's one aspect of why I wrote the book, to show that, that you have to keep pushing forward, and often there is, is a, a price to pay at some level. And, and the other thing, I mean, because we're going to be considering this tomorrow, you know, we're, we're going to be considering the vaccine for the 5 to 11-year-old. So this is, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is all public information at this point, because we have gotten our document a few days ago. But, but so what was the trial that was done by Pfizer? It was a um, roughly uh, 22 200 child study, two to one vaccine to placebo. So roughly 1,500 children got vaccine. Three children got um, placebo. There, I'm sorry, 1,500 got vaccine, 1,700 got placebo. There were 16 cases of um, COVID in the placebo group among that 700. There were three cases of, of COVID in the vaccine group. So for a vaccine efficacy of roughly 90%. Now, now, people are going to come back as they did on the 12 to 15 year old group, which was roughly also around a 2300 child study. And they're going to say, that's it. That's all you want to study. 2200 children with Pfizer's vaccine for adults. That was a 40,000 person trial. And we're going to now make a decision for millions of children based on on 2200 children. And, and so so the answer to that is um, how big of a price do you want to pay? For this knowledge. So, so if you did, instead of doing 2,200 children, you did 22,000 children, then there wouldn't, th in theory, have been 16 cases in the placebo group. There would be 160 cases in the placebo group of children who suffer this disorder. And I think the emotion for me in writing this book, if you really want to know what, so what, what drove me in this, because I think the scars of our childhood or invariably become the passions of our adulthood, was polio. I mean, I was as a, um, as a five-year-old, I was in a polio ward in, in Baltimore for, for about six weeks. And and, and um, it, it's I saw polio. I certainly saw polio and it scarred me. But what 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 struck me about that 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 whole development of the polio vaccine was what Jonas Salk did. What he did initially took polio, grew it up in cell culture, purified it, inactivated it with a chemical, tried it, tested it in 700 children in the Pittsburgh area induced an excellent immune response. It was safe. He went to his, his wife, Donna, that night and said, Eureka, I've got it. This is the vaccine. And that was good enough for him. He didn't want to go any further than that. He didn't want to do a trial. He thought, how can you do a trial of children in the summer, in the 1950s, knowing that polio was going to cripple many of them, permanently harm many of them? Um, actually, it's interesting. This, the hospital I was in was called Kernan's Hospital for Crippled Children. That was back in the days when you could use words like crippled and feeble-minded to describe children's hospitals. But um, the, 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 and so a trial was done. So 420,000 children received his vaccine, 200,000 received placebo. That was the famous March of Dimes trial between 1954 and 1955. And when it was over, the vaccine was declared safe, potent, and effective. And so that headline, safe, potent, and effective, was the headline in every newspaper in this country. Church bells rang out. Synagogues held special prayer meetings. The Voice of America announced it to Europe. Um, there were department stores that stopped waiting for that announcement to come. So how do we know it was effective? We knew it was effective because 16 children died of polio in that study, all in the placebo group. We knew it was effective because 36 children were paralyzed permanently in that study, 34 in the placebo group. Those were first and second graders in, in the 1950s. I was a first and second grader in the 1950s. But for a flip of a coin, those children could have lived long, fulfilling lives. And I think that's the part of this that nobody ever gets. When people walk into our hospital, children walk into our 
our hospital with their parents volunteering for the trials that we're doing. And we're doing trials for the COVID vaccines in the five to 11 year old, as well as the six month to five year old. You know, hats off to them. I, I think I, I suspect they're all hoping they get vaccine, but they, they, they may not. And when they don't, they may be like in the case of the children we're going to be talking about tomorrow, those who suffered uh, COVID and, and pretty significantly. So um, it's the price of knowledge and, uh, and it works both ways. And I think people don't get it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get people to have a better understanding of this. Do you think that medical profession has become somewhat of a victim of its own success? That it's done so well in so many areas that the expectations have uh, risen to such a level that they're not achievable, or at least in many people's eyes, unachievable. Yes, my vaccines is certainly a victim of their own success. I mean, you know, we don't see vaccine preventable diseases anymore. Um, I mean, what happens when you get a vaccine? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing happens when you get a vaccine. That's what you want to have happen. Um, you know, I, I like the uh, Jenny McCarthy when she was arguing why children shouldn't get a measles, mumps, rubella vaccine because, in her mind, they caused autism, which obviously they don't. She said, she said, as she does so eloquently, you know, quote, I'll take the frickin measles every time, meaning that I would much rather have measles than, than get autism, not that that was ever a choice. Um, but, you know, so what, what does that tell you? It tells you not only have we forgotten what measles looks like, the, the memory of measles is gone. I mean, you know, we're now taking at our hospital, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, refugees from Afghanistan, immigrants from Afghanistan. Um, and so we've had cases of measles in our hospital. And when they when there's a question about measles, they ask old people like me to come around and take a look because I know exactly what it looks like. But those young residents don't. What about government authority? Dr. Ray, you probably know that before the Civil War, communities mandated smallpox vaccinations. Can you imagine the response if we mandated a COVID-19 vaccination in whole communities? Do you think that the government position has changed in such a way as to endanger certain people? Well, so the government has mandated vaccines. I mean, through P any any, any uh, company greater than 100 people that receives government funds, that, that vaccine is mandated. Um, now, that's a mandate. There's a difference between mandatory vaccination and compulsory vaccination. Mandatory vaccination is you're asked to get a vaccine. If you don't get a vaccine, you will pay some sort of price, whether it's, it's you have to get frequent testing or a mask or... Um, that you you don't get to have your the job that you had that's that's mandatory vaccine compulsory vaccination you're vaccinated period whether you want to be or not um, the only time that's ever happened was in Philadelphia in 1991 associated with a massive measles epidemic that centered on two fundamentalist churches that um, were faith healers that was that was we had in that city in the three month period we had 1400 cases of measles and nine deaths and our city was. Um, just a, uh, a, a fear destination, put it that way. So, um, so that's what mandatory vaccinations are. We have school mandates. We've had school mandates for vaccines since the 1970s. This isn't new. Um, it's just that, you know, we, as, we have this sort of bizarre sense of freedom in this country. You know, I mean, it's a country founded on individual rights of, and freedoms. And I think somehow that means to some people that their freedoms or civil liberties means that they get to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection, which isn't true. That's not true. And the Oliver Wendell Holmes quote is, you know, your right to swing your fist ends at the tip of my nose. I mean, you're making a decision for other people. This whole personal freedom business, it, it applies, applies to tetanus vaccine. You don't want to get a tetanus vaccine. You get tetanus. Fine. No one's going to catch tetanus from you. It's not a contagious illness. But, but this is, it's, it's quite contagious, highly contagious. It's, it's really, this Delta strain is as contagious as chickenpox. So that's not your right. Sorry. 
And so this whole bodily autonomy thing just doesn't sell. Let's switch focus. I'm interested to talk about your own physician leadership journey. Could you describe several situations or career moves that solidified your status as a physician leader or helped in your development as a as a leader? Um, yeah, I didn't really seek it. <laughs> that means anything. I just, um, I, I think, you know, we, we um, anger is largely what propelled me. I mean, when I was on the ACE Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, and I saw sort of us not really responding to this. Also, I just, I really, really don't like the anti-vaccine activists. I think they're media savvy, they're politically connected, they're lawyer backed, they have influence because they have money often from a lot of times from private philanthropists. They often serve as a cottage industry of false hope for their, you know, their autism cures, et cetera. I am really think they need to be countered. And so um, that's what drove me to do this. I mean, to sort of stand up to the anti-vaccine activists with books that I've written like Autism's False Prophets or Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All or Bad Advice, you know, why uh, celebrities, politicians and activists aren't your best source of health information. That's that sort of put me squarely in their their I'm a target for them. So that's good because I know that I'm really upsetting them. So I, I'm not a big person. <laughs> What's as we wrap up our time together, Doctor Offit? I'm interested in uh, your lab. Your lab had significant role in the development of the rotavirus vaccine. Uh, was that a different type of leadership role for you, more of a entrepreneurial or innovation focus than an academic focus? Well, it, it was. Um... For me, it was, you know, I mean, I guess it's hard to think of yourself as a leader when you're spending sort of most of your day inoculating mice in a windowless concrete blocked room. But, um, you know, what what I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that um, that created the strains that became the rotavirus vaccine. That was uh, Stanley Plotkin, uh, Dr. Fred Clark and I uh, did partook in that 26 year effort to make a vaccine. Um, and you know you 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 don't really ever think you're making a vaccine. Uh, you you know that you're trying to understand the virus. You know that that you you know it's important to make a vaccine. This is a virus that kills you know before the vaccine killed you know five hundred thousand children every year in this world. So um, it kills as many as two thousand children a day. It's a killer rotavirus. So I mean I was really fortunate enough to be with these two amazing researchers, Stanley Plotkin and Fred Clark, to be part of that team to make that. Um, and so we and so it became a vaccine. We you know that that was uh, that was. Great. I can tell you that you're uh, you're never comfortable, even when the vaccine is out there. You know, it's like the the gods are angry um, or the, I think the Chinese uh, proverb is, you know, the uh, um, when the gods are angry, they grant your wish. So we got our wish. There was a vaccine. But, you you know, your throat, your heart was always in your throat waiting to see whether there was going to be a problem. So there's never a moment of repose, an angle of repose there. Dr. Offit, thank you so much for your time and all of your good work. On behalf of the American Association for Physician Leadership, I greatly thank you for your time. Thank you. It was my pleasure. My deep thanks to Dr. Paul Offit for his time and insights. I recommend Dr. Offit's new book, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccinations, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We drop a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom.
You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man Robin, went from Kapow.